0: Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Beth Burke and Chris Sands. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Beth Burke with the Canadian American Business Council, joined by the always wonderful Christopher Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center, the Canada Institute. How are you doing, Chris?
1: I'm doing great, Beth. And I don't know about always wonderful. I had COVID over the break, but I'm feeling better now.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're better. That COVID just never gives up, huh?
1: It never gives up, no. (laughs) But neither do we here on Canusa Street. We're always bringing great conversations to our listeners.
0: Exactly, and I'm really excited about today's episode because there was quite a celebration yesterday, quite a party between Mexico and Canada. They were celebrating eight decades of diplomatic relations, and uh, they even had a commemorative lottery ticket, which I'm, you know, was thrilled to see the photos of. It looked like quite a shindig, so really excited for today's conversation.
1: Me too, because Canada and the United States, we know each other so well, and sometimes we forget the neighbor. And it's so important for us to keep in mind that Mexico is a full partner in the USMCA and in so many other ways, Mexico affects us economically, culturally, and even in terms of national security. Even better, for me anyway, talking about Mexico gives me a chance to introduce one of my favorite Wilson colleagues to our listeners. Yes, wonderful. Andrew Rudman is the director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. Before joining the Wilson Center, Andrew was Managing Director at Monarch Global Strategies, a strategic advisory firm located in Washington, DC, that focuses on government relations, market entry and access for companies interested in doing business in Mexico and other Latin American countries. Prior to joining Monarch, he served as Deputy Vice President for the Western Hemisphere at the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association of America, Pharma as we know it here, Uh, where he was responsible for executing policy advocacy strategies for member companies across the hemisphere with a particular focus on Mexico and Brazil. But, notably for us here on Canusa Street, he also covered Russia and Canada at various times during his tenure. So he's put a foot on Canusa Street before. He began his professional career with U.S. government, serving in the Department of State as a Foreign Service Officer, followed by being at the Department of Commerce, where he was Director of the Office of NAFTA and Inter-American Affairs. He is a great colleague, wonderful to have him here, and he's no stranger to Canusa Street. He's been on once before. Andrew, Welcome.
2: Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Beth. Great to be with you again.
0: Wonderful to have you. So maybe we'll just dive right in. Uh, You know, Chris sort of hinted at it earlier in the conversation or in the intro here where we were talking about, you know, the trilateral relationship and the importance of Canada, U.S. and Mexico. Can you just, you know, in layman's terms for our average listener, what do you think the most important issue facing us right now is? So
2: I think um, it's a great question, Beth. And I, I think um, in one sense, it's hard to say what's the most important thing because there are so many things on which I think our three countries certainly should collaborate to resolve the challenges before us. I, I think if you look at what's on the front page of the Washington Post lately, if you think of what the U.S. Congress is talking about, migration is is obviously one of the most important issues. And while the focus is always most on the U.S.-Mexico border. There are obvious, there is obviously the movement of people north to Canada as well. There's also, I think, opportunities, should be opportunities for the three countries to collaborate more on addressing the root causes. I mean, my sort of take on migration is always that people walk thousands of miles at great personal risk selling their belongings because they really have made a conclusion that this is the most rational, smartest thing they can do for their families. And until, we, the global community, uh, help those countries find reasons for people not to move. They're going to keep moving. So, so migration comes to mind. Um, the one that, that you and Chris alluded to that we always think about, of course, is USMCA. And, and I think specifically, if we think about the near shoring trend and how do we as a region capitalize on that, how do we both make sure that, that our region remains there, all three of us make sure that our region remains the most competitive in the world and that there are, you know, we have the workforce development to create the people able to fill the jobs, that's really important. Um, I think also that we think through some of the, the political and security implications of, of that collaboration Things like where do we, You know, where, how are we drawing the line between, you know, uh, Chinese investment that's just, you know, investing to promote jobs and where to, where are there some security challenges? So I think those are, you know, among the many things we could talk about. Let me, uh, I'll stop talking uh, for a moment there
0: picking back on something you were saying you know USMCA is obviously really a hot topic we talk about it a lot here on Canusa Street and I think in our respective uh, other jobs as well what do you think um is going to be probably the most pressing or interesting opportunity as we look to reevaluate and you know review USMCA in 2026
2: you know I I guess my my first thought Beth is that I I think Those of us who who believe strongly in in North American integration and see the benefits of USMCA, I think we need to be careful that we not sort of convince ourselves that everybody agrees with us. And if we think back to to NAFTA, we think about the 2016 election, Chris and I have written about this Chris separately and we've written together on this as well. The fact that um, in 2016 really neither presidential candidate was pro NAFTA. Um, I think we have to be careful. I think we have to, we, we those again, those of us who who see the value in USMCA, we need to keep telling the story um, because it's in, in one sense, the 2026 review should be a no brainer. Like, well, of course, we're going to continue and move on. But I think in all three countries, there's the possibility, perhaps most here in the US, there's a real possibility of people actually mucking it up or starting to question well wait a minute. Do we really want this and what is it doing and and so I I think before we even start thinking about like what are the opportunities we have to make sure that people see and understand why why it's a good thing and why as I said you know um quoting myself why it should be a no-brainer that we want it to continue. And then I think we should be looking at ways to to deepen it and and that can be you know we've sort of done the terror thing but um there's always more opportunities for regulatory coherence and and convergence there's opportunities um getting back to the the migration question i think we could should be looking at ways to to update the the tn visa figure out ways it can be used more effectively and even think about you know moving toward um more inclusive labor mobility um We've got a project in the Mexico Institute that's looking at ag labor, the movement of of ag laborers mostly between the u s and and Mexico. But there's a Canada dynamic as well. The Canadian temp Ag worker program is often cited as a model. Um, and and, you know, but as we know that we need labor not only in in ag, so I think there there should be opportunities to look. But again, i would I, I would go back to, that you can only do all that if you sort of convince people that the North America thing is is worth having before you start getting into the more, you know, the the things that would be a little more tricky, a little more controversial, like the movement of labor, regulatory harmonization and, and things like that.
0: Well, that is all we do all day. That is our bread and butter at the Canadian American Business Council, North America, <laughs> regulatory cohesion, all those things. So, yes, absolutely.
2: I, I remember, I think, when Chris and I probably first met when people used when I was at, at Commerce and we would talk about the tyranny of small differences between uh, between the U.S. and Canada, and uh, over things like how orange our uh, our cheese crisps or cheese curls could be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, another great line, uh, Andrew. I always think is uh, Porfirio Diaz's famous line that uh, "Poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States." But in this period of eighty years since the establishment of diplomatic relations, uh, there's a sense in which you could re- repackage that or, or re- and say, "Poor." Mexico, so far from Canada, so close to the United States. And it's made the the geography of that with the big U.S. in the middle has made it, I think, over the years, particularly when technology was a bit more basic in, in 1944, when, when relations started, much harder for Canadians and Mexicans to interact, for the governments to develop friendships. Do you think... Um, Today, there is at least uh, a greater mutual understanding of each other. Has the interaction that we've had since NAFTA given Mexicans, um, you know, a greater appreciation for where Canada fits in?
2: I think so, Chris. But I, I, I still feel, you know, again, I'm, I'm very much believe in the, in the idea of of North America and the, and that that we should collaborate trilaterally. But I think the reality remains that in many ways it's still three bilateral relationships, two of which are far bigger than, than the third, right? I mean, the amount of trade between Mexico and Canada is tiny, um, certainly compared to U.S.-Canada or U.S.-Mexico trade. Um, as you point out, the, the geography, I mean, right, it's just the reality. I was talking to someone the other day, it's, you know, we're not going anywhere. Mexico is not going anywhere. The U.S. isn't going anywhere. Canada is not going anywhere. Um, but I do think there's certainly more appreciation in Mexico of Canada and in Canada of Mexico more awareness and and um, at the risk of maybe being really provocative. I, I think in some way the Trump administration decision to or threat to tear up NAFTA and the insistence on renegotiating may have pushed Canada and Mexico together more. I, I you know from being in the in the private sector at that point. It often seemed like it was the Mexican and Canadian governments and the three private sectors against the Trump administration. So I think it's kind of weird to say, but I think there was sort of that sense of a common enemy um, pushing the, the two, and I, I think as as you and I know, Chris, the, the business communities um, collaborate extensively and interact a lot. And again, I, I really think that was because they suddenly saw this external threat or in this internal threat, but there's threat to something that is like, you know, to something that nobody like, well, of course, we're going to have NAFTA, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, somebody actually wants to wants to tear this up.
1: It's been fascinating, too, since we've had USMCA come in, something that we thought might have happened with NAFTA, but has happened much more since we had the agreement, is Canada and the United States teaming up to challenge um, on labor rapid reaction and a couple other areas Mexico where it isn't meeting its obligations and yet While we've seen more of that, we've also not seen Mexico sort of circle the nationalist wagons and reject this. In fact, the AMLO government's been very um, willing to help root out those cheaters who are not paying their workers enough or are not doing the right things. How do you explain that dynamic? Have we have we reached a different uh, era or is this something that's going to be tied to AMLO himself or or just the early days of USMCA?
2: Well, you know, I think the what USMCA does on, on labor in many ways is reinforce Mexico's 2019 labor reform, because Mexico itself recognized that some of these labor contracts weren't terribly democratic, that workers really didn't know what the union leaders had agreed to. And so I think in that sense, it's a little bit easier because USMCA is another tool to help the Mexican government do what the Mexican government wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um I think you know if if the number of cases proliferated, or if, and this was a concern when the provisions were being negotiated. I can remember Mexican officials were really afraid that it would that the rapid response mechanism would be used as a as a, a non tariff barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the fact that so far most, if not all of the, I think all the cases had been resolved. There essentially was a finding that yes, there was a violation, and it had to be corrected. And I think as long as, you know, as long as it continues to work and it isn't used frivolously or excessively, I think it'll work. If, if the U.S. and Canada brought, you know, 300 case claims tomorrow, um, I, again, maybe they'd all be legit. But, you know, if, if it started to be a proliferation of claims and you started to really question the, the validity, then obviously things could change. Um, but... I think it made sense, right? The three governments recognized, yes, we need to fix this. The one thing the Mexicans will often point out, of course, is, um, and we all know this, it's a very one-sided provision. The the U.S. and, and, and Canada can far more easily challenge labor issues in Mexico than vice versa.
0: Very true. So switching gears just a bit... You know, most of our listeners know that there is a U.S. election coming up in November, but some may be surprised to hear that there is a Mexican election in June. So we would love to hear from you what you think is at stake in the election and what that would mean for, you know, the dynamics of this relationship.
2: Yeah, I, I think, Beth, I, I think um, I, I would start by saying I don't think the dynamics of the relationships change dramatically. Um, depending on who wins the Mexican election, um, we're, we're this is out, outside. I think this scope of this conversation, who wins here, might have an impact. Um, but but I think I think whether it's um, Claudia Sheinbaum, the former mayor of Mexico City, who's supported by AMLO, she's the the governing party's candidate, or Xochitl, um Galvez, who is representing the opposition coalition. I I think. Because no matter who is the president of Mexico, they recognize that the economic relationship in North America is is so essential to Mexico that uh, while you might see little nuances of change, I I think generally you're not going to see a huge change. I mean, the truth is, while Lopez Obrador has a very different approach than his predecessors, the bilateral relationship has not. And I think the trilateral relationship has continued apace without a huge divergence or difference from, from the past. The issues that are, are faced in Mexico, um, I do, if you'll let me, a shameless plug. Back in November, we published um, a booklet called Mexico's Next President, Challenges and Recommendations, in which we looked at six issues that we think the next Mexican president will have to address, and there are six issues where bilateral or trilateral collaboration is, if not essential, certainly would be beneficial. And those were energy, migration, nearshoring, uh, security, USMCA, North America, and water. And um, those are all issues that are important, I think, in for the Mexican electorate. Security is one of the most important issues. Um, you know, both personal security, um, which is obviously important to everybody, but also the questions of security that relate again, sometimes more bilaterally U.S. Mexico to the flow of. Fentanyl North and Weapons South and money laundering and and the role of criminal gangs uh, in migration and human smuggling. So those are all issues that that are important. The other issue that's really important on the from the Mexican perspective is is essentially Mexican democracy and Mexican institutions. And um, the current administration has frequently attacked the independent electoral authority. Um, They are. Uh, As far as we know, planning to introduce constitutional amendments next Monday that would eliminate many of the independent agencies. Um, So there are some real concerns uh, that that I think legitimate concerns that people in Mexico have about what will become of Mexican democracy of the independence of institutions and sort of the transparency Um, And predictability that I think we all look for and expect, and that, of course, is one of the great uh, aspects or benefits of NAFTA, and then USMCA was that predictability. So those are some of the issues that folks will be thinking about.
0: That's really helpful. I also feel like we have to point out that both of the presidential candidates in Mexico are women. So, you know, that's a milestone that neither Canada or the U.S. have achieved, which is quite remarkable,
2: Right. Well, Mexico, um, under law, 50 percent of the candidates have to be women. As you're alluding to, I think this is really the important piece of it. I think when this first when this provision was first implemented, what would often happen is parties would put up women in, in first seats, either less important ones or ones that they knew they weren't going to win anyway. And what you've seen now in this election is, though no, these are and, and there are lots of women politicians in Mexico who are, you know, sort of have legitimate political bases and are legitimate political actors and the fact that they're they're no longer on the ballot because they're women they're on the ballot because they're strong policymakers and strong candidates and that's i think why you wind up with with women as the leading candidates for president there is one there are really three three candidates running the the third candidate is a is a man Um, but the likelihood is that one of the two women will in fact be mexico's next president
1: well, we, I know we always have kept the rule on Canusa Street that 50% of the hosts are women. So we're, we're, we're trying to meet the Mexican standard as much as possible, although I don't help. Um, I, let me ask you a little bit about something. I, we've been talking about it because we work with young people. Uh, and so it's a little bit more exciting, but in 2026, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico will make history hosting the World Cup of, uh, of soccer or football as it's called elsewhere. Um, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Three countries, a huge territory. How do you think we are preparing for that opportunity? And is that something you think that will bring us together? Or do you think that uh, sporting milestone, I mean, Canada does get a couple of games, it may be their only chance to host the World Cup because uh, because of just the logistics and so on. But do you think this is uh, this has got a, a, a sort of upbeat for North America or is it gonna be something that we may wish we'd never done?
2: Um, I mean, you know, we certainly hope it's the former, um, and, and I think it can be, Chris, and, and you and I have talked with us. I, I think, I mean, it was obviously total fluke that the World Cup year and the USMCA review year happened to be the same year, um, and I think what that should mean is a real opportunity to focus attention on North America, on on USMCA, of course, but really on kind of our region, and 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 I think there's really two possibilities or, or two opportunities. One is sort of to promote North America to each other to kind of reinforce this notion that that it, yes, the United States and Canada and Mexico are distinct. And and I'm certainly am not advocating that that we surrender any of our sovereignty or nationality. We're always you know I'm always an American, but um, I, I think it's an opportunity for all of us to appreciate. How interconnected we are, and what we can do collectively. And certainly, if we pull off the the world's largest sporting event, and it goes well, then that is a demonstration that look, we can collaborate, we can um, do something together that is cultural, that isn't just trade, right? Because I think part of it is the idea that North America is more than just the exchange of goods and services. We we our peoples are interconnected, and you know we all have families. Um, you know, as I as I always like like to. To point out, my mom was a newfie, so you know there. Almost every, not every, you know, many of us in the United States have family from either Mexico or Canada, or maybe even both, and and we can stress those points. And I think it maybe is is kind of a nice compliment It may prove to be a nice complement to the trade conversation about um, USMCA. The other piece um, there's the promoting internally, reminding ourselves, and then of course I think the other part is broadcasting to the world this concept of north america and i wonder if one of the things that could come out of it it would be great is if there's some sort of a a world cup visa some sort of ability to facilitate travel of of those from outside the region to games in all three countries does that show us that we could do it that we could collaborate collectively and you know if i sort of fantasize or think back to my early part of my career, could we ever have a situation where if you apply for a visa in one of the three countries, it's good in all three instead of now where, right? If you're a Brazilian and you need a visa in all three countries, you got to go to three embassies. Um, could we move? Could the world cup prove that yes, we can do this. We can share information and screen together because that would be huge, right? I mean, that that's a an important aspect of Europe without having to go down the you know, this sort of surrender sovereignty, creating extra national institutions. So I think there's, there's some really interesting opportunities if, we, if we're smart about it. I don't think anybody's focusing on it yet as much as they should.
1: It leads me to a quick question, and I don't know if you would know this. I don't know, Beth, you would know this. Have they, um, have they dubbed or, or translated Ted Lasso uh, and showed it in Mexico? Is that available? Because that, that inspires a lot of Americans and I think Canadians too to think about soccer more than we normally do.
2: <laughs> I don't know for sure, Chris, but I, would, I, wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be surprised.
1: <laughs> All right, that's we'll put that on the cultural exchange uh, watch list coming up. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask for for me kind of my my last question uh, about about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is the auto industry. You know, one of the big decisions we've had in dispute settlement between the U.S. and Canada uh, and Mexico has been over the automotive rule of origin and the U.S lost that case. We had come up with a rather expansive definition of how origin should be calculated, one that definitely benefited us, but made both Canada and Mexico nervous. Um, the U.S. lost that case, but has yet to implement the, uh, the decision. How much do you think that unwillingness to implement the decision or delay is, is putting USMCA at risk? Do, does the U.S. have to show it will bend to the you know the decisions against it in order for everyone to have confidence that it is going to work?
2: Um, I, I, my my short answer to that, Chris, is yes. I, I think um, that if if the countries don't accept when they when you know they want to they they're happy to win, they they need to accept when they lose and and they need to implement. And I think there's a real concern that if the U.S. doesn't implement, if Canada doesn't implement on cases when it loses, um, if the countries don't move forward with cases, you know, they sort of start and stop and don't push forward, if um, the energy case with Mexico is the obvious example where both the us and Canada have made very clear they think that AMLO's energy reforms violate the agreement and yet we haven't moved forward for a panel, um, probably for reasons that have less to do with energy and more to do with domestic politics. Um, in in the, particularly in the U.S. No, I I think we have to implement because otherwise if if you don't implement the the terms even when you lose, then I think the agreement loses its value. I think that was maybe one of the problems with or criticisms of NAFTA, if 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 everybody recalls that it was really easy to stall on the panels and just never name panelists, and so you never got anything resolved. So no, I I I do think it's an issue. I think we have to. We lost, and we need to implement. And we should move forward on the cases that that haven't gone forward yet. Um, I know that this is more your bailiwick than mine, Chris, but I know the issues of Canadian dairy continue um, and have gone on for for decades, as as has softwood lumber. I mean, those things have to get, you got to, I think if you don't, if you're not willing to implement when you lose, then there's no reason, then why would you expect the other countries to implement when they lose and then you've got what have you got you don't have really much credibility
1: absolutely and on dairy i think there's concern that canada isn't implementing fully its commitment under usmca uh and so there's an example how can we hold them to the to their commitments if we don't get held to ours but uh, but i'm you know you and i could talk about this until the cows come home so uh uh no dairy joke intended um <laughs> <laughs> But but Beth, you know you're a Wisconsin person, so I know you appreciate uh, cow jokes. I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, always. But although because I live in Wisconsin, I am a little bit you know timid to jump in on the dairy dispute. I try to just stay out of it and enjoy my cheese. <laughs> <This
1: time>. Very
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been wonderful. Like. Thank you so much for joining us on Canusa Street. We really enjoy hearing all of your insights. I think it's going to be a really exciting time for all three countries. You know, we've got a lot of elections coming up on all sides of every border uh, in the next you know, few years here, USMCA. It's just really going to be a happening time. So we should all stay in touch and keep this conversation Let's going. We'll
2: definitely do that. Thanks again for the invitation great to talk to both of you.
1: And it's great to have you here on Canusa Street, Andrew. You're always welcome. Um, You're sort of a neighbor. uh, And I see we're both in the office as we record this. So I know you're a neighbor about 10 feet away. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) but glad to share our banter with the uh, Canusa Street world. Sounds great. Thank you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.